0: Welcome to MOMUS the podcast. We're your hosts Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. To our small team at MOMUS, Black Lives Matter is not a prompt for intellectualizing or disinterested debate. It's a clear and unequivocal threshold, a call for the right to live and to resist state-sponsored violence and systemic racism. For Momus's part, we are launching the Momis Emerging Critics Residency again this year with renewed attention to the lack of diversity in art publishing. With these editions being held this year at OCAD and Concordia Universities, respectively, although they'll both be remote, and every year going forward, we will both center and deepen this commitment to addressing and helping remedy the severe underrepresentation of people of color within the industry. Together, Lauren and I, with workshop leaders and lecturers, including Daisy Desuye, Osei Bansu, Salen Twardy, Rahel Aima, Tamar El-Sheikh, Mark Mann, Andy Patton, Nora Khan, and Aliyah Pabani will help shape and encourage the next generation of arts publishing professionals. We want to foster cohorts including strong representation of Black, Indigenous, and people of color and are ready to underwrite those successful applicants who cannot afford to participate. Please visit momus.ca for more information. The deadline for the Concordia residency is June 22nd, although we're happy to extend if you need more time. I should also mention that our senior editor is about to begin a season-long sabbatical, and we at Momus plan to engage BIPOC editors in a rotation of guest-led programming through the following months. We will be taking concrete steps to ensure we can establish a designated editorial role for a BIPOC contributor in the fall. In the meantime, please be in touch with me directly about editorial applications and suggestions. You can reach me at skygoodin at momus.ca. So Lauren, you spoke to an old friend of ours. Tell me about this conversation with Ebony L. Haynes.
1: Yeah, Ebony L. Haynes is a curator, writer, and contemporary art dealer. She's currently the director of Martos Gallery in New York. Um, where she's curated some pretty amazing exhibitions. One of them was called GWTW. It was an exhibition she described as about reactions to friction and aggression, the responses they evoke, and how the attention paid to voices of dissent swings between contempt and celebration. And last year, she presented a film series called Exploitation, uh, which she curated as inspired by black exploitation, which she writes provided black audiences with cinematic heroes and was considered at the time as a more honest and accurate portrayal of black realities than those depicted in most Hollywood pictures.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, having listened to the episode yesterday, I was struck by the. <sighs> The candor, I mean it's perhaps the most potent, loaded, impatient conversation we've had to date and the timing of it couldn't be better. Um, And of course there's also this undercurrent of warmth between you because, uh, we go back. We, the three of us, uh, were in grad school together. I don't know how many years ago now, 12, maybe. So, um, a different, a d- different time in history for sure. Uh, but it's remarkable. I mean, the warmth ma- is maintained, but of course this is not a, this is a not not a moment for niceties, right?
1: Yeah. I often think about, um, Ebony in the way that I received an email from a professor of ours. Uh, He sent me an email a few years ago. I think he didn't know that we knew each other or he had forgotten. And he sent this email kind of encouraging me to reach out to her and let me read it to you. She's really brilliant. But she doesn't let that stop her from having a shitload of fun. Sorry. I mean, it doesn't halt her interrogation of the serious slash fun binary that structures aesthetic experience as constituted by Eurocentric visuality slash pleasure. Oh, God.
0: (laughs) Just just the presence of the slash to that high degree. No, it's a fucking academic. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think that is how she would describe herself?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think we can both attest to the fact that Ebony is fun as hell. Um, Mm. But what this interview makes really clear is that she is doing the work Mm -hmm. as a Black woman in the contemporary art world. And like you, I was really, really grateful for the honesty and clarity that she brought to our conversation about her experiences and her motivations. So she spoke to me as a curator and a gallerist a lot about the exhaustion of representation and self-representation, her feelings of otherness and questioning whether fitting in is selling out But at the same time, we spoke about a recent project that seems to me to be one of the most sort of electrifying gestures in the commercial contemporary art world that I've seen in a really long time. Right. That's
0: Candace Williams' takeover of Martos Gallery's Instagram feed this past week. Yeah, exactly. So
1: Ebony invited Williams to curate a series of videos for Martos's Instagram stories focused on violence against black bodies. And it was sort of a weekend long, relentless stream of videos of police authority and white abuse of black people. Um, In our interview, Ebony describes it. Oh, and also on her Instagram described it as the real news. And I feel like that's exactly what it was to watch it for me. Um, Mm. This was a reality that I had had the privilege of never having seen so clearly. And amidst the exhaustion that Ebony speaks about at length, I think it's a it's a real testament and very inspiring to see her also organizing and enabling this kind of teaching and power and expression.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's well said. I would just say strap in. It's a hell of a conversation. Bravo to you both. Here is Lauren Wetmore and Ebony
1: L. Haynes. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first question we've been asking everybody is, uh, "Tell me a little bit about where you are and how the past two weeks to three months have been." But I was also looking at your Instagram and I was (laughs) seeing that post you (laughs) made, calling out white people for being like, "So, how are you given the current climate?"
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so funny. I had a call. I'm on a board for the Arts Arts Alliance, the New Art Dealers, and we had a two hour meeting yesterday and I just like lost it. I actually have to call the director today, not to apologize for losing it, but just to say, you know, you have one black person on your board and it's a lose, lose situation for a white person though. I mean, if you don't ask me how I'm doing, you're an asshole. If you ask me how I'm doing, you're privileged. <laughs> you know, like I recognize that. But just don't have a conversation about this right now. It needs to settle. Like, I didn't want to have a, you know, with an, with an organization that's been around long before I, I even knew what the art world was. Yeah. And it's never diverse. Yeah. And people are dying and there's violence against black bodies have come to your attention because there's riots in the streets. And now you want to talk about it. Maybe I shouldn't be involved in this right now or today. It's not the right time. Like I don't, I don't care about your frivolous attempts at the moment. I'm at home with alone with the baby. Don't ask me how I'm doing. Fuck your organization. I'm the first person of color you've ever had on the board in the history of your organization. So I just, it's just like, and I had to tell Heather, I was like, look, it's just the wrong time. Like there's, you're not going to win at this. You have to maybe, I maybe can't be on the calls right away. It feels too fresh talk to a bunch of white people who own galleries. I'm the only non-gallery owner. It's like, what does that tell you? Black people can't own galleries. How am I doing? Um, I'm okay. Um, I think there's a, a large sentiment amongst people of color in the art world of exhaustion. Yeah. That seems to be a lot of things that a word a lot of people are using and it, it, it becomes exhaustion. I mean, we're always tired and we're always doing this sort of work. I mean, I told yeah. some colleagues yesterday, just because you represent one Black artist and they don't make it explicitly known when you're meeting with them that they are Black, they are feeling it and yeah. they're doing the to not make you feel that. They are choosing to omit that feeling. So yeah. they're always working. They're always tired. Yeah. And right now it's even more exhausting because it just feels like this, um, pre like dangerous therapy session, like Mm. with an inexperienced therapist, (laughs) everything is going out and nobody has anyone to tell them how to calm down or do self care. And for some people it might turn dangerous and for some, you know, it's like getting dark for some people and some people really are thriving from it, but it's like a free therapy session we didn't ask for, I feel Mm and trying to keep things in perspective and also getting very tired of reassuring ourselves that we're doing it for the good, you know, like, okay, yes, I'm working for a white man. I'm bringing in a black artists. Yeah. I have a project space where I'm doing things like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Nobody wants to be pat on the back right now. You never feel like you're doing enough, but you also don't want to be the one to tell white people how to do it. So it's like, they, I think the last two weeks have been things we, we've always felt and just have come to the fore that we have to not do the work to hide it anymore. Cause we always hide it. What does that sense. hiding look like? Um, it looks like high functioning mentally healthy and emotionally healthy black people, um, moving through the art world, doing studio visits, going to MFA programs, um, applying for residencies trying to show a gallery like that is all hiding a lot of fatigue and feelings of otherness Mm -hmm. and telling yourself that you are a part of the conversation and that fitting in is not selling out. It's just working towards a bigger goal. And you just are always telling yourself that you're just always like, look, this is what we have to do. I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to be part of the conversation this way. Yes. That person just called me a nigger, but you know, I'm not, I'm not eating it. I'm using it. I'm going to take it and use it. Like that's exhausting. One
1: of the things that I immediately wanted to talk to you about was probably to do with a lot of that work that you are doing with Marto's gallery and how it doesn't really seem like with this latest step you've done of bringing Candace Williams in to do an Instagram Mm -hmm. takeover that didn't look like hiding to me and i found it really powerful and learned a lot and also had a lot of shame even for my own self of of seeing things that i had never seen before um but i think that that what i want to know is what is your what is your thought process and the artist's thought process around how how that works, like how within this art context, within an institution, like voices and images can be mobilized through art towards whatever this greater goal is that, that you were mentioning.
2: Um, I think that, you know, I'm also guilty of using this moment to, to be more vocal. I mean, I doubt I would have that uh, violence against black bodies, Instagram takeover, I think it was super important for me to do something with our gallery platform. Um, I thought it was really important for me to be aware that this is a white space. Um, You know, it's not my gallery. Yes. I'm often the voice or the face of things because I program it most of it, Mm -hmm. but it's not my gallery. And I want to bring someone in to fuck it up a little bit. And I had that conversation explicitly with Candace, Mm -hmm. you know, no censor here. You should do what you want. This is a white man's gallery. These are his followers. And what do you want people to see? What do we want to say? And um, not put out some kind of a comment that we are working to better our community, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, let's just show people what's really happening and, she did. I mean, I also wanted her to have a platform that wasn't just her own for it to be viewed as like an artist project. Yeah. Um, as it comes across in her space, which I think it is. And is really valuable for another reason, but I wanted it to just be violent images on a gallery. Instagram page for everyone to see and kind of like Candace wanting you to see it, not just here's my curated artist page.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you called it
2: the real news yeah yeah uh I don't know I think it was I just I really also appreciated the work Candace was doing and I've always loved her practice and have shown her a few times at Shoot the Lobster and Martos Mm -hmm. and have sold her um publications from Cassandra Press whenever I do like book fairs and stuff whenever I can support her and seeing what Candace was putting together and knowing that she was really, it takes, it, you know, it takes work. She actually had to put in so much time to follow. To, it's like curating a thousand videos to yeah. find the ones that you want to make sure people see. So I just thought, you know, I even told her she could repeat the same thing she puts on her own page, but just to expand it to more viewers was important.
1: Yeah. And have you had any uh, feedback from followers?
2: Yeah, a lot of people, we had a lot of um, emails to our info account of people like thanking Martos for putting it up, and a lot of things like reposts, which were nice. Um, Candice also had a film up on the website at the same time, so she got a lot of donations for her work, which was good. Yeah, Yeah, it was mostly, nobody relayed anything negative. Whether they felt any sort of bad vibes from it, no one voiced that to
1: me. Yeah. So I think the question also is a, right now is around um, isolation and COVID. If we can like, <laughs> I don't know, rewind like two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking to an artist just before you and I started having this conversation, or just before also the death of George Floyd and she was saying that one of the things that's really disturbed her about COVID closures and social distancing is that it really takes away people's ability to protest and to gather.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think there is also like a huge concern around aspects of community and proximity with art making and experiencing art, say on the other hand. And I wonder as, you as somebody like a curator, a dealer, and a writer, you're involved with pretty much every aspect of being a part of the art world. And a lot of that involves a lot of like social interaction. I wonder what that's been like for you for the for the past few months and how you see that going forward.
2: Um yeah, it's it's strange not being social. Just- <laughs> straight up I mean a huge part of I can only speak to the art scene on a part of here in New York but so much of it is about socializing and interacting with people and visiting spaces and studios it's a huge part of my practice yeah just seeing things and talking to people and you know it sounds so superficial but networking is how I meet a lot of artists and curators that we you know I begin to forge relationships with both personal and working. So um, it's been very strange and also interesting to see, to consider how people are trying to put out messages and images without having the ability to describe any nuances. You know, it's really just here's a photo of this painting and it's like a black face, you know, <laughs> and no, and there's no discussion or I post up some text cause I'm feeling it. And then I end up having discussions behind the scenes with a few people, but it's not, it's, it's, it feels very rigid. And I try not to be too calculated about what I put out and what I'm doing. I I do think there's something about reacting to the moment that is necessary, but, um, Another curator I was speaking to just yesterday, um, a black woman, said that, you know, she feels that this is going to be a mark, a marker on her career, what, what she decides to put out there. Right. Which I thought was really heavy. I mean, I don't think that weight should be on any person, especially a woman of color, but yeah. it's almost like a everybody's forced to revisit the way they make art, the way they write about art the way they share information yeah. and ideas about art. You know, my biggest um, chat group is a DM group in Instagram that I was added to by some black artists. Mm-hmm. And it's just, we. I mean, I think we just need to find ways to continue to socialize, even though socializing looks so different now. Is part of the exhaustion you're feeling because of a certain sense of performativity in this moment? Yes. And it's a about the performance of this moment, but also,
1: um, maybe the way it disregards the fact that this moment has been ongoing
2: completely. Yes. You know, you don't want to do the work as a curate, as a black person in the art world, curator, dealer, or writer for recognition. You know, I don't think I know anybody who is doing it all for stripes, right? I do a lot of projects. My name's not on it, so I can't really care about recognition all the time. I, I really do feel for myself a priority has been increasing visibility, especially in the commercial world, because that's the main one I'm a part of. But it feels like a lot of, the, I guess what I was trying to say, that's that's my practice. And it gets to that idea of that being a practice with a long-term goal, there's like an end game to it gets dismissed as just being a black person and the artists just become black artists. And it's not that there's a conceptual practice. There's, you know, I have like a conceptual sculptor. Um, I have a research-based practice. There's a sound installation artist, you know, but then they all just become black. Um, and, you know, part of my practice has largely been the absence of the visible black body. Um, but it feels like now we're just all black bodies. We're just all names on an artist list. Um, you know, not to say that it wasn't like that a lot before there's some sort of frustration with Galleries who just, who represent a black artist and that becomes enough. It's like they've hit their ratio, their quota. Right. But in other practices like my own and some others I know of, it's about filling, you know, the gallery is supposed to have a taste. There's a style to the gallery list if it's a good gallery. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just going to work with any artist because they're black. Mm -hmm. They're going to fit the program. Um, so it becomes insulting when, Everything just feels like numbers. Like you're just this. This gallery shows this black painter. Well, do, they don't show any other painters.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So why is that relevant? You know, and I feel like a lot of people, like myself, have put in long and hard work to make sure we find a program that fits, an artist that fit the program. But now it's just black and black representation.
1: Right. I guess maybe if I understand what you're saying, it's like the presence of the Black artist is in service of the gallery and they're being perceived as representing a Black artist rather than a gallery who is invested in an artist's practice who is Black. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that might be me. Now that you say it back to me, that is probably what I'm saying. It sounds a bit
1: harsh. I don't think it's harsh at all. I think you're absolutely right. Like, we were even sharing I, that, um, that, uh, yeah, this graph about thing. Toronto galleries. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, this is disgusting yeah. and has to change. And I'm happy to see these, I mean, not happy, but, you know, I'm happy that somebody's placing these numbers in front of me, in front of everybody. But at the same time, without a follow up conversation the implication of the um of the solution is just okay get those numbers up totally and it's
2: and it does a huge disservice to the black artists right. because then you're just a flash in the pan maybe you'll have your first show and but you don't do anything to the program and it doesn't do anything for you and this a similar list came out in new york I don't know if you saw this, but it was like the time really collapses on itself. I think it was in 2016. Okay. Around the last, think around the last Whitney, not the most recent one, but the one before. Okay. And there was a lot of press about it. Um, I can't remember who was, who started the list, but I believe I, I received it from Hannah Black or I saw something that she posted about it, but a bunch of artists contributed to this big statistical grass. Yeah. And then shit hit the fan. Mm. And by next year, by the one year later, black artists got representation all over the fucking place. Then it became just, but then it was only, it was only black figuration. It was only black figurative painting Mm. that was getting scooped up really quickly. And, you know, I make jokes all the time. I like posted something on Instagram about artsy releasing their third black figurative painters to watch, you know? (laughs) So it becomes, it becomes this fetish, yeah. Um and it's it's com- it's more comfortable for white collectors and dealers to to handle. Number one painting is yeah gonna get scooped up first and then figurative painting. Yeah. And it's easier for them to talk to. you, So it's it's just insulting. It's like do you're not doing the work actually. Yeah. Not that there aren't great black figurative painters. Do your thing. I'm not saying, you know, that's that's a totally legitimate practice. I'm saying for the purposes of white representation.
1: Yeah.
2: It's it's sought after to fulfill those quotas more so than, you know, somebody who does sound installation. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, maybe you can talk to me a little bit more about the place that, um, the absence of a visible black body has in your programming.
2: um, yeah. I mean, to give credit to Martos, Jose Martos, he did, he, you know, he had a program that I was interested in from the beginning when he approached me to be his director. Mm-hmm. It was never painting heavy. <laughs> um, it was always kind of difficult subject matter. A lot of, a lot of identity a, already. He had more, you know, he had women on the list more than some. Wow. And I, I know it's so sad to say, <laughs> Um, and he wasn't approaching me to be his director because I was black, Hmm. which is very noticeable. And I had been approached for that reason before. So it was a program in a space that I felt very fortunate to be a part of. And I knew that I had, would have freedom to do what I thought was important. And I did not want to dismiss the program he'd already set up because I liked it. And, um, I wanted to keep to a traditional model to benefit the artists. So that meant bringing in artists who worked well together, who worked well with our, you know, way of doing business. It wouldn't, it would not have been to just bring in a black painter who sells for a hundred thousand dollars. It was very, it was a very emerging program. It still is. Um, And I just, I just wanted to keep with what he'd started, but, you know, add a bit more color to it, literally. (laughs) And he is, you know, I definitely have been heavy handed in the programming, but he's always involved. So I'm, I would, I would never, for example, sign an artist without just speaking to him. It is his gallery. Um, and the reason I feel so comfortable with how we're moving forward is there have definitely been artists that he's not into. Of color or not of color, and he'll say it, which is why I know, I mean, we talk about sticking to a program that we we believe in, not just adding artists because they might be a hit or we yeah. need more women or we need more. we need another Asian artist or like what we're not trying, you know, I'm hoping that he's not just doing that. And once I realized he wasn't, and I was able to take my time and research artists and get to know, people's practices and what I thought would fit it just felt it was really fun actually it's 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 fun right now I mean not right now (laughs) not right this second but it has been pretty fun I have to say
0: Waddington's celebrates 170 years of expertise in a vast array of specialty areas and appraisal services. Recognized globally as a knowledgeable and trustworthy source, Waddington's conducts an average of 100 auctions a year, in addition to a growing number of auctions in support of charitable organizations. As we
1: continue to fight COVID-19 through social distancing, the Waddington's team continues to offer a range of online auctions for you to view and bid on from your own home. And their specialists are available to answer any questions about the works in their upcoming auctions. Visit waddingtons.ca for more information. So go back a second. So we were talking about the ways that disservices are done to Black artists. Um, as artists and probably also as professionals. And then you said that there had been instances when you had been asked to join a gallery because you were a black woman. Can you talk a little bit more about what your experience of being a black dealer, a female dealer, how all of that has kind of come together?
2: Yeah, I think no one would explicitly, like no one has explicitly said, we we really need a black director. Sure, of course. But... (laughs) Um, there's there are clear moments when you just know you just know why they're approaching you you know they've been in existence for 50 years and have never had a black person work for them then this list goes out that says they don't have any enough blackness and then they want you to be you know it's like you just know it so and there aren't very many um, there are a lot of people in black people working in the art world in different capacities, like writing, curating independently without the kind of capital A art space. Yeah. Who may not be afforded the opportunities in a gallery like I am. So the pool for Capital A art space to find a director is very small. The the amount of black staff that work in galleries, I can only speak to New York, but it's super tiny. We all know each other. That's how small it is. We all have dinner together. <laughs> It's true. We have a dinner club um, called Entrenue. Mind you, it's just for black women, but it's still very small. (laughs) Even if we could include black men, it would still be very small. Um, So what's the point I'm making here? What was the question? How it feels? It's exhausting. There's the word again. It's exhausting. I've been in, in the gallery world now for good Lord, almost 10 years. I can't believe I've been in New York for almost 10 years, but, um, so many an art fair I've been to where I'm the only black person working a booth. Yeah. The majority, the majority of the art fairs I've been to. Um, that's, that's the kind of work I was talking about earlier where I, am choosing not to let you know that I feel very black. I'm working extra hard so we can have a conversation I mean, my, my name's Ebony, you know? I mean, my name's Ebony, I'm standing in a booth in the middle of a convention center and I have to talk to people about buying art and, and it's happened, you know, all of the cliches happen. My assistant gets spoken to first and someone tries to talk about price with her, but she's white and she says, you have to talk to my boss and then it's this awkward moment where I have to decide, do I want to stand with my fist in the air while I talk to them, which I do, But instead I have to backpedal and make sure they feel comfortable and it's about a transaction and a relationship. And you know, I'm rolling my eyes while I'm saying these things. But that is very exhausting work. Yeah. I think not just a black woman feels it, but any non-white man in the art commercial world especially feel that way often. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's exhausting to have to explain this sort of personal provenance of how I got here and where where did where did you come from this. I don't do that anymore. I stopped very early. I just sort of changed the conversation or removed myself from the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know it's also I don't know, it's like thankless often It's thankless and you know your efforts are often overlooked, and you get hyper, you know people sexualize you in a different way because I'm a woman of color, so then it's like this exoticizing. you know, it's, it's they're all little tiny. like the micro the microaggressiveness of it is mm-hmm. so quick, but um, ever present. Ever present for sure. Yeah. And I think that's when I was keep talking about people feeling tired is because a lot of any non-white man feels this. And at this particular moment for black people in the art world, it's coming, it's being opened up to everyone. And then it's, like I said, this um, unvetted therapy session, which is dangerous. So the floodgates are open and everything that we've been feeling is coming out and people want to be heard and they want changes, but it's almost like this dangerous game where we've been suppressing it for so long, trying to maneuver within the systems. You know, I used to pride myself. i give, be guest lecturing in some graduate class, and it's an MFA, and one time a student asked me, it was a Canadian class, and the structures are already very different between Canada and the States and the commercial art world. Yeah. And, you know, it was very casual, but somebody asked me if I thought I was selling out, and, you know, Oh, commercial and selling galleries. And I was like, you know, it's, this is an example of the work, you know, and it was an artist, an artist of color. And I was like, you know, it's not really selling out. If you make money, don't, you know, you have to be part of, part of the game too. Museums, curators work with museums, work with galleries, work with collectors, collectors are on the boards of those museums. You know, don't you want to be a part of the game? Do you want to apply for grants forever? you know, you should be able to sell a painting too. But that is to a credit to that to that artist who maybe doesn't want to be part of the system because it's it's fucking tiring to make excuses. For me too, I always make excuses like, oh maneuver through, find a way to play the game and get what you need from this and that. It's like, yeah, eventually it's eventually you just want to give up and live in, in the Tricky and apply for grants and write from your mobile home and grow vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, you want to you want to stop this because and you know another huge issue is non-white space ownership. Yeah, like we there are no people of color. There are not enough people of color who own spaces, whether they're non for profit or you know or commercial like where are the black people in the kunstal mm-hmm. they don't like probably Tokyo gets a new black curator and they want to write a press, like give it to all of the press outlets to sing their own praises. Yeah. It's like y'all should be doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. And ownership is so feels so impossible. Sometimes people approach me all the time about opening my own space. I'm in a foreign country. I'm not on a green card. I'm still on a visa. And that shit is expensive.
1: I was struck by when you were saying that when people ask where you're from, you stopped answering that question. Mm -hmm. And are there other strategies that you've developed or employed to like, protect yourself and thrive and not
2: deal with that shit? I mean, I definitely share openly with friends and colleagues, but when a collector is getting to know me for example i perhaps don't let him know that i lived in south america for a year and you know like it's nothing i don't get personal it's more of a well i completed my mfa and came to new york kind of keep out details of because you know the the I just realized why i keep out those details is they're so you know they they get squinty eyed They're like how did you this is legit how it happens. Okay. Okay. How did you, how did you come to work for Martos? You know, like they're so mind blown that I'm here. (laughs) And in the beginning I was, I was so enamored with the world that I was entering and I was felt really fortunate that an internship turned into a visa. You know, it it was hard work, but it's hard work for everybody. So I was happy to talk about it. I was like, Oh man, I was like, you know, living in Toronto Did my graduate program, uh, had a kind of awful experience, was like, fuck this, I'm going to move to New York, and now I'm here. Isn't it crazy? Like, I was also in this state of wonderment, but then I was like, fuck that shit. I worked as hard as everyone else. I'm the director of this gallery. Do you want to buy this motherfucking painting or not? (laughs) (laughs) Because it it happens all the time. You're like, so, even now, you're like, oh, you work with Jose. And I speak French, and Jose is French. Okay. So we we have a wide French clientele base. We do a lot of um, we do like the Parisian fair and Brussels fair. Not anymore, actually. I boycotted the Brussels fair. We we did not do it, um, and we won't do it anymore. We didn't we didn't apply this year. But um, if I speak French to them, also, and I'm with Jose, and how how did you come to you speak French and yeah. you're working with this guy. What are you doing in Paris? Yeah. It's like,
1: this isn't a miracle. This is the result of me busting my ass.
2: Yeah. yeah. So I, I kept, I, now I, I used to really give into it because I liked my story. To yeah. be fair. Yeah. It was really, it was like me being proud of myself. Yeah. And never in my wildest dreams did I think in so many moments that I would be in Paris at an art fair or be in Miami. And I, and I loved it and I loved the opportunity but now I'm just like, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. Yeah. And it says director on the website. Do you want my business card or do you want to talk to Jose? Mm-hmm. That, happens, that still happens. I mean, they people still want to talk to the white man instead of me, but yeah. that doesn't bother me as much as it used to. It used to really get under my skin, but I could care less now. There's one less person for me to have to talk to.
1: <laughs> Why have you boycotted the Brussels art fair?
2: Because Brussels is the worst.
1: <laughs> Tell me about it. Sorry. No apologies necessary.
2: Brussels is the worst city. to. Vi- I don't enjoy visiting it. I don't like, I don't enjoy how I feel when I'm staying there. The fair is the most racist fair. I feel like any person of color who works at a gallery who has done the fair before has been is so used to the racism that it washes over them in a different way. Yeah. Because, you know, a collector called me a nigger in a booth. He called me that Negre, actually. And didn't know that I heard him. Yeah. Nor did he think I understood what that meant, but it was just the way, you know, it's like, you know, it's like if, if someone says person of color or like someone goes person of color, you know, it's like the tone, you mean something negative with it the way he was saying it. He was speaking to his wife after I'd spoken to him at length about this painting and then said that I pointing to me like told him about the price, but he wants to talk to Jose. And I was just like, it was opening day of the fair, which means VIP hours, which means these are the people with money. And I had to leave the booth. I just, the fact that I was referred to as Lenegg in, you know, 2018 in an art fair, I, I just like, it felt like you were p- putting a sign that says nigger on my chest. Like that's all I was. He did, He also didn't want to talk to me about business. This black girl was talking to him. Now he wants to talk to the white man about price. And he was so dismissive of me. And I just, and that was just one very, a bit more overt situation. Yeah. But I mean, talk microaggressions in Brussels. Good Lord. Can y'all put any more money into that museum of genocide? Like that is the worst museum I've ever been to in my life. Uh, You should provide free therapy for black people who go to that fucking African museum.
1: Yeah, no, I remember you did an Instagram story and I, I'm clearly watching a lot of your Instagram, but that's okay, that's what we're there for. <laughs> but you were walking around that museum and yeah, it was just nothing but
2: like white, Dutch white people. White people on tours looking yeah. at videos of black people and looking at all of the artifacts that were looted and stolen. And little kids, like Boy Scout groups. I mean, it was just it was so dark yeah and they just put a bunch of money into renovating it it was like the reopening of the african museum
1: yeah and and also a lot of rhetoric around like we're renovating it with an eye towards entering whatever fucking century of critical discussion about what this material is but
2: i asked the like this like poor front desk docent person oh my god (laughs) i was like do you, are there black people on the board of this museum?
1: Yeah.
2: And she was like, um, I think so. Mm. I was like, I don't, uh, I was like, you think, do you have, is there any way I can access this information? I was like, I'd like to know who the board is and who was the board in the decision when it, the decision was made to reopen the space as is mm. like she was, I was being pretty aggressive and she didn't know how to respond, but needless to say, I didn't actually look into it. <laughs> I, I didn't care that much, but, uh, fuck Brussels, man. I won't ever do that fair again. And I brought a black artist on purpose, um, just to have a big solo booth with him. I mean, he's also a really good friend and I love his work, but we both, we both talked about doing something in Europe with his work. And it's just like, uh, I just, it's just too much. It's just Brussels is too much too much so it's so racist there i i often just wonder how anyone who's not white who lives there like the immigration population is so huge and i'm sure they all get treated like shit yes they do but everyone is just complacent because they're just they're just struggling it's not they've just worked so hard that you have to let it not affect you have to let it wash over you or you'll want to die so brussels was a place where Yes, I let the microaggressions wash over me all the time, but that was one city where I could not. Interacting with people, crossing, you know, people not wanting to talk to you in the same way when you buy things in the store. Like, it's, you're in fucking, you're in, like, the 19th century. Yeah. Still, and it's palpable. I could feel it, and I told Jose, I was like, I'm not coming back here. If you want to do this fair, you're doing it on your own. I'm never coming back. And I plan to never go back unless I really have to. <laughs> it has to be an emergency. Art would never be enough of an emergency for me to go back to Brussels.
1: Do you think that there ever are
2: art emergencies? No. There are, there are things bosses like to think are emergencies. For real. <laughs> like, uh, you know, trying to ship things in the middle of a quarantine. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh, you know, it's always, you know, we sell something, collectors need it, stat, because it's all they care about. And I actually, legit, while I'm talking to you, my boss just texted me, can you call me, please? We need to move this work to Belgium. (laughs) Legit just sent me that.
1: Is there something when... I emailed you, or in the subsequent uh, times that we've tried to talk, that you felt like you wanted to talk about something you wanted to say?
2: And I think, I mean, one thing I have just been thinking about in general is there needs to be more of a response on a level of the institution in terms of preparing, you know, preparedness for art world people of color. Meaning you know, graduate undergraduate and graduate programs, systems of mentorship need to come back into place. People of color need to know that there's an opportunity for them out there. I mean, you really get sent out into the world with no idea of how to be successful in yeah. the art world, because you haven't really been given the tools, meaning you have not been made aware enough that your skin color, makes you a visible minority. It needs to be that explicit, you know, like you're taking a curating class. What does it mean to be a black curator? Yeah. And why is that important to know? And why doesn't your own school have any black professors? You know, like I and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, but I mean, I felt like I was sent out into the world. Um, I had to create my own goals and learn what the real art world is like because my school experience wasn't real. It wasn't a reality. Yeah. Nor did anyone try to help me understand it. You know, I don't want like the white man to come to me and be like, you are a black woman, but that's what I mean where they need to start on their own, like on their own side and figure out, you know, change the coursework, reach out, figure out more ways of mentorship and residencies and, outreach and conversations for students of color and if you don't have a you know curator a queer curator of color on staff talk about bringing one in to speak to your students because they need to have those conversations earlier
0: Momus, the podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae and assistant production from Mutra Sherham. We would like to thank Ebony L. Haynes for her contribution to this season. This has been episode 22 of Momus, the podcast.